the mind is not just one thing. The mind has many different components. We're going to break it down into four. So at the top, this is like a wheel. And all the aspects of mind are like those four spokes of the wheel. They're all connected to one thing, that center hub. At the top, we have innate wisdom. Okay, the Sanskrit for that is buddhi. That's the root for the, the name that was given to Siddhartha Gautama, the historical person who then became awakened, who they called Buddha, right? So this is the enlightened mind, the awakened mind, the innate wisdom that knows from the beginning. Innate wisdom means it's not learned. It's not learned. You didn't get it from somewhere. It's indigenous. All the other aspects of mind are learned and conditioned, but this part isn't learned. Its wisdom is innate. It still can be worked with and can be cultivated and trained and, and sharpened, but its basic functioning, you came in with it. Everybody has it. Okay? Every living thing has it. So this is the power of discerning. Right? Well, I said yesterday, animals don't usually eat things that cause them to get sick unless it's unknowing, right? Fish in the sea eats plastic, but it's actually not doing that knowingly. It thinks, it thinks that that's plankton and it eats it and then it gets sick. But no living thing goes against its nature because of the function of innate wisdom. So innate wisdom is connecting with what it is that serves you. To do that, it's the quality of discernment. The buddhi is what helps you make decisions based on what is wholesome, what isn't what causes you to thrive and what doesn't. When you're suffering, it means that you're not listening to the buddhi. It means the buddhi has become kind of clouded over because one of the other four functions of mind is over-dominant. It's intuitive knowing. It's the accountant. It sort of tallies things up. If you do that, this is what's going to happen. Right? It, it understands cause and effect at an intuitive level. So you start to look at a decision you're about to make and you go, what would the result of that decision look like? By working with it playfully that way, the buddhi starts to get stronger. Your power of discernment gets stronger. The innate wisdom gets you expanded. It gets brighter. Okay? It's like an advisor. It's like uh, every emperor, every president, every CEO has, you know, they try to get a circle of really wise, smart people around them because no one's that great at making their own full comprehension decisions. Well, inside of you, you have this faculty, and it's the wisest thing on the planet. The practice is, can you listen to it? The next practice is, can you actually take its advice? Right? So first, we have to learn how to hear it and stop doing the opposite. We have to actually have to choose our action based on that wisdom. Don't be frustrated if you find yourself not doing what you know you ought to do because that's a that's a gap that has to be bridged by actually doing it each time you do what you know you must do the booty gets stronger and the relationship between action and knowing gets stronger and each time you don't do what you know you must do it gets weaker right so on the homework sheet I, I summarize that in two little questions for you if I uh, when you're about to make a decision if I make this decision, will I stand taller? If the answer is no, it means you went against your buddhi. Make sense?
that's making the power of continuity work for you. Right? That's how you build up the strength of the flip side of change, which is continuously abiding in your innate wisdom. The key practice is to restore the brilliance of that by using it. Right? By using it. It's simple. You'll learn how to decipher that from the others as we get through the other three. Let's just sweep through them and then you can ask questions about all of them. The next one is the intellect. In Sanskrit, that's called manas. So this is the thinking mind, the processing mind, the data in and data out mind. It's that mind that logically organizes information that it takes in, and then it spits that information out through the senses. I'm using the manas in part right now to turn thoughts into words and convey them in a way that I think you could understand. That's a functioning of manas. Right? When you take an exam, when you're reading, all of that is the functioning of the intellect. It's been overdeveloped in every person who's been educated. It's a very powerful thing. It doesn't know the way to happiness. It doesn't know the way out of suffering. It doesn't have any wisdom. It's just information. We operate our entire society off of manas and chitta. That's why we continue to do the same thing. So when you see it in yourself, or you see it in a family member, or you see it in an organization, or you see it in our government, it's like a slightly different version of exactly the same thing. Because there's not a lot of wisdom. Look, we can grow hamburgers out of stem cells. That's manas. Oh, look, we can grow a two-headed sheep. That's manas. We've figured out how to do something super smart, but we destroy our own environment. We make ourselves unhappy because there's no buddhi. You need the advisor there advising the intellect, or the intellect is just out of control, right? So it's a very, very powerful thing, but it is not the master. It is not the leader. You are the leader, and the buddhi is your counselor, and the manas is your employee, your friend. So it's kind of like running a good organization. If you're an asshole to everybody, they're not going to work really well for you. You can't boss around your mind and your body. You can't sort of dominate your body and your mind. You have to befriend them. You have to work kindly with them, and they'll work for you. Okay? Especially the manas, because it's, it's, at this point, it's very strong. You don't want to weaken it, but you need to put it in its place. Okay? So the key practice here is to train the manas to follow the advice of the buddhi. So whenever you find yourself spinning around in information and data, you then connect with innate wisdom. What's the true thing to do? What's my true aspiration? What's my true desire? Who am I? What do I really want? Those questions activate the innate wisdom and connect your information to something actually that's going to generate your sustained happiness and well-being. I wrote here, Manas is the workhorse of buddhi. Buddhi says, okay, here's what we must do, and then Manas figures out how to do it, and it's really good at that. Let's say you're a doctor, and you want to have medicine be available to people who have no money. It's the Manas that goes, okay, I can figure that out, and then it makes Doctors Without Borders. So much strategizing, so many websites and pages, so much stuff has to be done to actually deliver that idea, which came from the heart. Manas is really good at doing that work. Right? So put it to work on stuff like that. But the, the knowing comes from innate wisdom. 
Now it gets a little trickier. Memory, the storehouse. In Sanskrit, this is called chitta. If you've studied the Patanjali Sutras, I know some of you have, are yoga students and have studied yoga, chitta vritti is the main sort of thing that the whole Patanjali Sutras works with, which is the oscillation of the chitta. It's like a whirlpool. So this storehouse is like this big storehouse or big lake of all the things that have happened to you and the latent impressions that were made by everything that had happened to you. So the, what we talked about as the residue of trauma is inside the storehouse. When we're talking about the mind, for the manas to be happy, we're just calling it the mind. But in reality, we're talking about the body-mind. So when I talk about the storehouse, it's not just somewhere in your head. It's actually, the mind is in every cell of the body. And every cell of the body is in the mind. Okay? So the storehouse is a mental somatic phenomenon whereby what has happened wants to repeat itself. All the chitta, the storehouse does, is push forward what has happened. That's happened, so it's going to happen again. That's happened, so it's going to happen again. Basically, whatever you repeat becomes repeatable. And there isn't any manas, there isn't any intellect there, and there isn't any wisdom there. This is animal level repetition of of patterning, right? When buddhi is really, really dim and that there's a lot of chitta functioning, those are the people we call, you know, heavy afflictions. Those are the people who could never make it to a workshop like this because right now they're smoking crack. Uh, seriously, they can't get off the street. They can't get out of bed. Heavy afflictions means so deep in the storehouse of latent impressions, in the cycle of suffering, that you, at that point you can't even see light. You can't even dress yourself or get a job. All of us are in that to some degree or another. But if you're functional enough to come to a workshop, you're ready and have already started to break the cycle. It's already actually happening. It's just about putting your full genuine oomph behind it and it will break. The way to do that is your question. When anger started to come up, where did it come from? You didn't think, in five minutes, I'm going to deal with my anger. It came out of nowhere. Where did it come from? It came from the storehouse. The storehouse is constantly giving off its thing. It's the pot steaming out. It's the lake evaporating. The more you practice not reacting to what comes out of the storehouse, the storehouse will empty itself. You don't have to do anything. But when you react, you just make another reason for the storehouse to run another round of suffering. If you don't face your trauma, you actually make more trauma because it adds more trauma to the storehouse. Okay? I'm reluctant to use the word karma because we're in California and everyone thinks they understand what that means. And you probably don't really understand what that means because it means a lot of different things. But it's kind of like karma. It might not have started when you were born. It might have started with your ancestors. You might have inherited some of the storehouse from your ancestors. Genetic dispositions toward disease. Does alcoholism run in your family? Where did you get that? You didn't, you didn't sort of start it at the moment of birth. It kind of came with your constitution.
So some of the storehouse is karmic, some of it is genetic, and a lot of it started at birth, or in utero at least, when you started accumulating the effects of the world that was happening to you. Okay, the way to clear that is to use buddhi, get your manas on board, understand the view and the method, and then apply the technique daily so that the chitta will empty itself. Why does the chitta empty itself, you asked. Well, don't I have to do something about that? No, what can you rely on? What's going to empty the chitta for you? What force? What indomitable force of nature? The law of change. Nothing can stay in that storehouse. It has to change. It has to, what we call, self-resolve. It has to move. To keep it simple, think of it it's like a river. It has to move. But what you did with a part of the river with chitta is you made it into a, a pond. And now it's all, you know, got pond scum on it. So when you start doing the practice, it starts to clear itself because of the law of change. It becomes a flowing thing again. That's the one that maybe is a little harder to wrap your head around. The simplest way to understand this is it's anything conditioned. Your original nature didn't have those patternings that made you stay in the cycle of affliction. That's chitta. There are great words to describe all of this in Sanskrit and in Tibetan and in Chinese and in Japanese that are very precise, but they don't translate into English very well. Right? The word samsara is very accurate in describing this. It means same turning, same cycle. It means going around and around in exactly the same way. And if you notice, that's how suffering works. Oh, there you are. You're doing it again, again. That's how chitta works. The good part of chitta is that it's just memory. It, it, it remembers. But the bad part of that is, that we talked about yesterday, your remembering is from something that already happened, but now it's a new moment. So it's not exactly like that. So if you rely on that kind of repetition and that kind of memory, you're actually not with the living moment. So we put a lot of our identity into the chitta. Oh, I forgot that person's name. I'm a loser. Oh, I forgot that whatever, bar of the music. I forgot that move. I'm a loser. So you don't, that's sort of putting identity into the chitta. It's very secure because you know it, because you've gone around and around and around and around. So a couple of you talked to me on the break, and you were sort of going like, I, c I don't have anything to hold on to. That means some chunk of the chitta started to move, and you have less of this kind of stability of knowing. That means it emptied a little bit. And the new experiences that you don't really know, that's actually where you're going. And you learn to trust that booty is there in the living moment. You don't know, and you know what to do. You don't know, and you know what to do. Okay, so everyone goes through a moment or many moments of feeling afraid as the chitta starts to clear out because you really don't know who you are because you're not the person you were and you're not really sure where you're going. And you're going, I'm just going on trust here. And that's actually the place that the spiritually awake person lives all the time. That you don't quite know. Right? Does that sound a lot like focusing on the vital center in meditation? You're not 100% certain you got it. That's the right way. That translates to life very seamlessly. Okay. Cows don't know what they're going to do next Tuesday. They're not worried about it. 
Squirrels don't plan how they're going to retire. Nothing in nature is worrying about how it's going to be in the next moment because it's trusting its nature. It will respond appropriately to the circumstances because it's always true to its nature. But it has less free will than a human being. You could go against your nature. But when you learn to trust the buddhi and remain in your nature, you'll know, I'll just respond appropriately to whatever happens. I'll be okay. It will be okay. And you, you relax on some level of your being. That's what's important about the chitta is to not freak out when you see the way you always did it actually falling away. And the way you're going to do it in the future hasn't shown up yet. Don't go running back to the chitta just because you need something to hold on to. Let yourself be okay in the space between there's two trapeze and I need to get to this one and I'm swinging back and forth and it's kind of far, but I have to let go of this one, fly through the air and get the next one. The moment the chitta clears is the moment you're in the air. You're going, oh shit, I'm not holding on to anything, but the other one that's right there, just trust, it's there. The next piece is the trickiest, the self-concept, the ahamkar. In Sanskrit it's called. The self-concept is the basic function of self-preservation. So we need it. The purpose is not to get rid of any of these parts, but it's to put them in their place so they function together. We need self-preservation. We talked about it yesterday. I think you understand that. But beyond that, the formulating of a separate and solid personal identity is what causes suffering. Tell me why. Correct. It goes against the law of change. What is it that could be so solid and enduring that it, it wouldn't actually be subject to the law of change? Your body? No, it's changing. Can you be your body? It's constantly changing. Your thoughts? They're constantly changing. Your emotions? Constantly changing. Your concepts? Constantly changing. You didn't know algebra when you were two, right? You'll forget it when you're 92, probably. Are you your intellect? It's always changing. What are you going to use to formulate a self that has enduring separate existence? You don't have a leg to stand on because everything's changing, and yet you do it anyway. That self is the illusory self. And what this function of mind does, this self-concept, its game is to install its idea of itself into the minds of everyone around you so that they give back the feedback to you that, yes, that's what you are. And when they don't do that, you get angry at them. Anytime you get defensive, it's because the person is presenting something that contradicts your self-concept. Well, we all do that in our own way. How am I hiding behind a self-concept? You watch it all the time. And you don't need to berate yourself for it. You just go, that's not what I am. This one is tricky because it's constantly operating with the motivation to solidify your identity. The reason it does that is because it's afraid of what? It's afraid of change. It's afraid that everything is slipping through its fingers. It scares the shit out of the ahamkar, out of the eye maker. It's purpose is to get 
security and solidity, but there isn't any. So you let it function in its base functioning as self-preservation. Eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're tired, go to the bathroom when you need to. And above and beyond that, you don't need positive self-esteem. You don't need to berate yourself. You don't need to identify with this culture or that religion or with anything. You don't need an identification. The fact that you are is enough. In fact, in some of the old languages, they don't actually have words, for example, in Tibetan, to describe yourself as esteemed highly or low. There isn't that concept. Because the fact that you're sitting right in front of me is it's self-existent. You're fine. There you are. It's not a matter of high esteem or low esteem. You're esteemed because you exist. But the ahamkar takes it one step further and then it does ego grasping. And notice when you're in it, you're oscillating between thinking you're good and thinking you suck. Right? Being happy with yourself and your achievements and the way you behave or the way your deeds or whatever, and then judging the ones that don't match up to the way you should be. All of that is the game of the ahamkar. All of that is the game of the self-identity. Right? So traditionally they say, do not identify with your deeds. Do your best, be accountable, but don't identify with it. Right? Write the next book, get the next job. Don't identify with any, anything. Just only doing your best with all functions of mind, counseled by buddhi. Do your best, let it go. Don't identify. Right? So you have to check yourself on that one. Are you identified? If this thing ends its truth, can you let go of being a teacher and become a gardener? Or do you keep your attachment to that identity? If you do, you know you're stuck in the ahamkar and you know the result of that suffering because that's not what you are. You go against natural law and you suffer. Your buddhi, your innate wisdom, is the best one that can easily see the self-concepts game. And it doesn't judge it, but it just sees right through it. It's like a grandma looking at you and she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And all that's bullshit. She doesn't say that because she's too nice. She gives you cookies, sees right through your bullshit and knows exactly what your motive is. Right? That's how the booty works. Mm -hmm. So once you start to be able to do this insight, it's called internal dialogue. This is the practice of self-reflection. And when you do the awakening dialogues, the other person helps strengthen that in you and you help strengthen that in them. But ultimately, we need it functioning inside of ourself all of the time. Okay? And all four parts of the mind all get behind your deepest aspiration, your true desire, your true purpose, and who you truly are. Those things you've got to work with. The workbook will help you a lot with that if you want to do the workbook. There is a handout in here that you can take home and use the self-reflection practice. You can work, it, work on it there. Or you can just ask yourself those questions. And I wrote it in the workbook as the boss. You're the boss. These four functions of mind are all your friends and your helpers. It's your true heart. It's your true spirit.
that is sort of moving toward what it most deeply desires out of this very temporary appearance. A very short time to accomplish your true desire. If you stay too long in the chitta, you lose so much time. If you only develop your manas and your intellect and think you're going to get it all through clear understanding and articulation, you're totally misguided. You're not going to fulfill your true aspiration. It has to be all four of these have been befriended, have been trained. They trust you. You trust them. They work for you. And everything you do is connected to your true aspiration. The way you eat, the way you dress, the way you sleep, what you choose to do for entertainment. And you'll start to notice that thing isn't congruent. Don't judge yourself for it. Just see the effect of that. You don't stand taller when you choose to do that because it doesn't actually contribute to your truest aspiration. It means that I have to keep training myself. You have to keep training yourself. There's no end game. You keep cultivating. Okay? But once you're clear on the true aspiration and that you, you recognize how to hear the innate wisdom, you can never not hear it. It's always there. Conscience is not the best word, but it's something like conscience. You just know what the, and I don't really like using the word right, because it implies some other way is wrong, but right for you, true for you, what the true thing is to do. And every time you do it, you stand a little tall, and every time you don't, you slump somehow in your spirit. The cool thing is, because of the law of interconnectedness, when you do it for one second, it makes it easier for me. And when you do it for one second, I'm more inspired. So it has this, this effect. And that, that effect transcends time and space. If one person in Zimbabwe does it, we all feel it. And it gets a little bit easier to do it because of our interconnectedness. So we're at a point in human history where we're capable of actually causing the complete cascade of the awakening of humanity. It's possible in our lifetime. So if you do it, enough people do it, everybody just goes, yep, this is the development of an enlightened society. And we enter what's called the era of wisdom. <laughs>